How are you doing? So I was teaching this um, <coughs> this webinar today on mindfulness and the inner critic, <coughs> and I gave this ex story, this example, which I often do about um, thank you, uh, you know, just an ordinary day-to-day -day example of losing your keys as a as a as an example of how you know one you know how. F fallible we are and also um, how easy for something like that to trigger some self-judgment. And anybody lose their keys every now and then or their wallet or right and then the judge, the mind gets on your case like, oh, you know, call yourself a meditator, call yourself a mindfulness teacher, you know. So my, my response to the critic when that goes on is, oh, Mr. Mindfulness wins again. <coughs> so anyhow, so tonight I'm getting ready to leave. And uh, I can't find my keys. <laughs> and this time I really can't find my keys. And, I, and I've got a pretty small apartment. And it doesn't take long to search the whole place and still don't find the keys. Um, so I run late for a client and then almost late for the class and um, borrow a friend's car to get here. And <coughs> so... Um, Mr. Mindfulness wins again, <laughs> is all I can say to that. <laughs> so, which, and I'm thinking, and I was thinking, well, what shall I talk about today, tonight? And uh, I couldn't really think of anything. And I thought, well, this is a great place to start. <laughs> the challenge of being human with decreasing memory cells. <laughs> And, um, of course, as, and I, as I mentioned at the, the, the end of the sit, that one of the key parts of practice is about how we relate to what's going on, right? how we deal with the stuff that shows up, whatever the stuff is, whatever the challenges or the foibles or the difficulties or the traffic or the heat or the whatever it is. And, and what practice does, can do, what mindfulness practice can do, is give us more skill, capacity, resilience to not be so swayed about by all of that stuff, by all of life's stuff. Right? At least that's the theory. <laughs> so I was on a road trip this week and um, up to the Oregon coast with some friends in an old RV. And uh, it was a great vehicle, except the, uh, the alternator wasn't working so well. So um, we were never quite sure whether the battery was going to die, you know, going up 101 at 65 miles an hour. And it was a great place to practice. You know, we got, we got uh, about four or five hours up the freeway and uh, the battery was dying, and we were just about to pull off to call it a day and find a mechanic and in the middle of nowhere. 
in Northern California. And then for some reason, as soon as we turned off, the battery revived itself. And that was the story the whole trip, like the battery would go down and some, something miraculous would happen. It would, it would sort of regenerate itself. So it's a great, you know, I, there's so many great metaphors for our mind and our practice, how we relate to the, sm- these are small change things. These are not, these are not big things. And of course, there are many m- difficult and tragic things that happen in our lives and people's lives. But the principle is the same. You know, we practice in meditation as a metaphor for our lives. How do we relate to our experience? How do we relate to sitting here tonight when it's a little hot and muggy and maybe you're tired or sweaty or your mind's busy or your body's achy or your heart's longing? How do you relate to all of that? Do you go to sleep because it's not what you want? I noticed quite a few people doing the wailing wall practice. (coughs) Looking very pious. Um, You know, often good strategy is to check out. Or, you know, do your to-do list or whatever it is. So how do we meet the fullness of our humanness? How do we meet... The, the whole catastrophe, the full catastrophe. How do we love that? And I remember reading this um, piece from Byron Katie, who's a wonderful teacher, and she talks about going to visit a friend of hers in the hospital who has cancer, quite sick. And, uh, and as the, uh, the visit was ending and Byron Katie got up to leave, her friend who was in hospital in this quite sick state said, I love you, Katie. And Byron Katie, in her very loving, fierce, confronting style that she has, she turned to her friend and said, no, you don't. You don't love me unless you can love the cancer tumor that's rotting away in your body. Until you can love that, you can't fully love me because they're not separate, they're not different. So how do we love this? I have a dear friend who has leukemia. And seeing her battle with the, the depletion of the body and the transfusions and the bone marrow transplants and, and seeing at times her spirit's very bright and other times very depleted and very sad and other times resilient. What is it that gives you resilience in the ups and downs of life? Because we never know what we're going to get. We never know what's going to happen. So a good friend of mine uh, was biking on Sunday and uh, taking this ride, which I take a lot, which is that you ride up the headlands by the Golden Gate Bridge and then you go down the backside towards Rodeo Beach. And it's very steep and very uh, not very uh, well, well, just tight turns. And she was flying down, as she likes to do, and, and just crashed you know concussion scraped up a whole body and she couldn't remember who she was she couldn't remember anything except she had a family and um, that she was a neurologist which she's not (laughs) and she's a psychologist (laughs) so you never know right from one moment to the next (coughs) 
So one of the things that we did on this road trip, which is my one of my favorite things to do in life, is to go hang out with some elders. <coughs> in this case, 1,500-year-old redwoods that are on the uh, north coast in the National State Redwood Parks up by just north of Eureka. Anybody been there to those redwoods? So if you haven't been there, please go and see them before you die because they are profound. That's as profound as a cathedral I've ever walked in. And um, there's barely anybody there because it's a five or six hour drive from here. And there's not much around except these vast forests of beautiful, ancient, virgin redwood forest. And the silence and stillness is palpable. It's more silent than anything I know, more silent than a deep, silent retreat, more presence than any person I've ever been around, more still than anything I know. And sometimes I'm walking, so I was with two other fellow meditators and meditation teachers, and so we're a pretty quiet bunch. Um, and sometimes we'd walk into certain groves and we'd just stop and just feel the palpable presence and stillness. And, and just and there's being brought into a meditative state when there's no need to meditate in those places. One is when one is present in presence in a meditative state. Quite exquisite, quite rare and beautiful. And it's also profound to be around beings that old, right? 1,500, 2,000-year-old trees. And they've been around a long time. And the sense of time and timelessness in, in that space is, is really uh, moving. So go there now. <laughs> Soon, I want to lead a retreat up there, taking walks through the forest. I lead a lot of nature, wilderness retreats, and nice to be around elders. So, I'm not quite sure why I was telling that story, but I wanted to share it anyway and encourage you all to go. So, so this is a meditation tradition, Buddhist tradition, insight meditation tradition. And the foundation of the tradition is meditation, mindfulness, insight, practice. But the point isn't to be a good meditator, although it's not a bad thing to be a good meditator. Meditation is really a mind training it's, it's, a, it's a lab. It's a lab in which we study ourselves. We study our mind, we study our hearts, we study our bodies, we study the nature of reality. And it's a conducive environment for that, right? No stimulation, we turn the gaze inwards and we take a look. Who am I? What am I? What is this thing called me that's breathing, doing life? Yeah. What is my relationship? What is my, how do I inhabit? this being called me? How do I relate to its 
changing nature? How do I relate to it aging? How do I relate to it being sick or being ecstatic or being lonely or being sad or being joyful? Right? So one meditation is a wonderful um, crucible. As Ajahn Chah said about meditation, if you haven't wept in meditation, you haven't fully meditated. Which means we haven't, you know, when we face our humanity, often it's not so easy. Otherwise it would be more popular. <laughs> but instead, you know, shopping on Amazon is more popular, you know, or watching HBO or other things. So even this, when this 40 minutes that we sat, right? Not only is it challenging to be present, right? To not space out for 35 of those 40 minutes. But also it's not, once we are present, it's not actually easy so often to be here because of what comes up. Right? There are feelings, difficult thoughts, restlessness, difficult body stuff, memories. So it's a training, it's a crucible to how to stay present, how to stay steady, how to ground and center the mind so we can then actually take a penetrating look about who am I and what am I and what's going on and why am I not at peace? Anybody at peace here? That's a serious question. Anybody at peace here? Uh, a few. seeing a few hands. Not many. I'd say that's like... 0.01 percent. That's an interesting piece of research. (laughs) How many people would like to peace? How many people would like to be at peace? Not so many. Wow, half of you. What the rest of you want? (laughs) Trouble? (laughs) Stress? (laughs) Grief? I don't know. How many people want to be happy? And I mean, that's a probably more. Boy, what do you guys want? I don't know what you guys. Maybe you just don't want to raise your hands. I don't know. It's too much effort. Oh, I don't want to raise my hand. Oh, it's dukkha. <laughs> and that's a good question itself. What do we want? You know? I think often what we want gives us those two things. It gives us happiness and peace, right? or meaning, or purpose, or satisfaction. But we often do a lot of things that interfere with the the establishment of well-being and, and happiness and peace. And all our mind, mental habits, all of our thinking processes and our tendency to judge and compare and get down on ourselves and fixate on what's wrong and what's not enough and what's negative. <coughs> and Buddhism is very scientific in its, d- in its elucidation of all the things that make our lives miserable. Right? Study Buddhism long enough and you get really clear about all the things that interfere with your well-being. <laughs> and it sounds kind of depressing. <laughs> Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to focus on the problem? Why would I want to focus on the negative? Why would I want to focus on the difficulty? Well, if we don't understand all of that, all of those tendencies and patterns and habits, then what happens? Then they rule us. They run us. 
If we're not familiar with the operating system and the software, then it's running us. So meditation is a way of understanding our inner software and the programs that we're choosing to run. And as I said, the point isn't to become an expert meditator, although that might be true, might be desire for some of you. But for most of us, we're not going to devote that much time and energy to it. You know, maybe half an hour a day, maybe an hour a day if you're really zealous. Maybe two hours. Occasionally, I meet people who meditate for two hours a day. How many people meditate for two hours a day here? I'm not seeing a huge show of hands. How many people me- an hour a day? A few. How many people half an hour a day? Okay. How many people regularly meditate like once a year? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's me. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's you know meditation is um, you know it's challenging in in a, in the course of, a, of an ordinary life with a family or work and commitments and whatnot. Hard to find that time to dedicate and focus, you know, a serious amount of time to it regularly, like daily, which is also interesting in itself. If meditation is such a great lab for self-understanding, self-awareness, and self-liberation, and freedom and peace, how come that? And if that's if that's a great doorway, how come we don't choose that? If we're not choosing that, it's a good question in itself. But coming back to my point of this talk, which I think is going to be the point of the talk, um, the point is not to become an expert meditator, but to, to, to the meditation, the mindfulness is in service of clarity, is in service of self-awareness, is in service of understanding, it's in service of insight, it's in service of freeing ourselves from painful, dysfunctional habits of mind and heart that cause ourselves difficulty. This is from Achan Chah. He says, Sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you can sit in meditation, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. (laughs) Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as, when he says practice, your practice of awareness, of uh, mindfulness, of kindness, Your practice should begin as soon as you wake up in the morning and continue until you fall asleep at night. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What is important is only that you keep watchful whether you're working or sitting or going to the bathroom. So that really is the point of our practice is to cultivate these qualities of wakefulness, of clarity, of awareness, of compassion, 24-7. Because that's where life's happening, not just on our cozy little buckwheat cushion, which might be very cushy for the tushy, but we want to be bringing these qualities into our life when we're checking in at the United Airlines counter and our flight has been inevitably delayed seven hours, as my was, mine was the other day. Or we're stuck in traffic. Or we're dealing with terrible news about our children 
or whatever it is? How do we continue showing up with awareness, with kindness? So Ajahn Chah goes on to say, each person <coughs> has his own pace, has their own pace. Some of you will die at 50, some at 65, some at 90. So too your practice will vary. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become like a still, clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare things and animals will come to drink at the pool. You will clearly see the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things, strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So this is our practice. Can we find the still point in the middle of the inevitable changing vicissitudes of our life, the ups and the downs of our relational life, of our stock market portfolio, of our health, of our children's well-being, of whatever it is that we are ebbing and flowing in. <coughs> How do we find that still point? How do we meet all of our humanity? And what trips us up, most one of the one of the many things that trips us up, but one of the things that trips us up is um, our ideas about how it should be or how we want it to be. Right? How our life should be, how our day should be, how this talk should be, how our traffic should be, how our body should be, how our partner should be. Definitely long list there. <laughs> how they should talk to us or how they should, you know, whatever, do what they're not doing. So we get into these fixations about, or these demands, these insistences about how life should be, how it should conform to our desires, basically, our preferences. We're pleasure-seeking creatures, right? We want things to be easy and pleasurable and nice, right? And it's not. <laughs> Sometimes it is. You know, we live in the Bay Area and there's a lot of affluence and nice weather and there's, you know, at least for some of us. So we have relatively pleasant conditions versus being bombed out in a town in Syria. Right? But still the mind is the same and we still can find as equal, well, equal strife, but we can still find as plenty of strife in the middle of our somewhat privileged life. So how do we meet that? How do you meet yourself? In that poem, that roomy poem about the guest house, I'm sure you all know it or have heard it, about meeting yourself, greeting yourself. I'm thinking actually of another poem, um, Derek Walcott poem, which some of you are also probably familiar with. There comes a time when you will greet yourself in your own mirror, you'll look in, the you'll look in the mirror and greet yourself. I'm really mixing up these two poems. Um, <laughs> I should know better. Um, you know, Rumi talks about standing at the door and welcome these, welcome these unexpected visitors, sadness, grief, loneliness. Meet them at the door laughing and welcome them in. Imagine their 
gifts, guides sent from the world beyond. So how do you meet that feeling of loneliness or despair when you wake up in the morning? Your body's achy and tired. Or your partner's being unreasonable and difficult. Or you turn on the news and you hear about the latest melting of ice caps and glaciers and loss of species. Or 165 degree temperatures in Iran. 165 degrees in Iran. 70 degrees Celsius. You think it's hot in here? All of 75 degrees? Add another 90 degrees. And the Middle East is burning up in lots of ways, including uh, global boiling. 70 degrees, second hottest temperature in history. Not so easy to meet these things. So everything is grounds for practice. So there's no breaks, there's no days off, there's no holidays from practice, right? Because you just it's just you and your life and your mind and your heart and how you're relating to it. Right? Which I find that very kind of relieving in a way. Right? You can go on retreats and meditate and do all that kind of stuff, which is great. But really it's just how do you, you know, once a teacher of mine said, how do you define enlightenment? I said, I don't know. And I came up with some, you know, not so great answer. And she said, mm, that's okay. But, and I said, well, how do you define it? She says, how I, um, the capacity to meet this moment's experience with awareness and grace. Because all we have is this moment. We may have enlightening experiences. We may have awakening experiences. We may have felt like we've awoken at times in our meditation, in our spiritual psychedelic drug use or whatever your doorway is to the sacred, walking in redwood trees. But then that becomes ancient history. And then there's a next moment. And then there's a next moment. And then there's a next moment. So walking through the divine <coughs> elders of the redwoods, and then we're back on the freeway, and the alternate is going out <laughs> again, <laughs> and the battery's going down, and we're worrying about whether we'll die in the middle of the freeway, you know, at sixty miles an hour. Where is that awakened moment now? Where is that awakened awareness when you're? Now, when you're tired and you want to go home, but you know there's half an hour left of this talk. <laughs> Do you st- should I stay or should I go? You know, so this is a poem from Anne Sexton about life and meeting it. There is joy in all, in the hair I brush each morning, in the cannon towel newly washed that I rub my body with each morning, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry from the kettle that heats my coffee each morning, in the apron and the chair that cry, hello there, Anne, each morning, in the godhead of the table that I set my plate and cup each morning. 
All this is sacred right here in my pea greenhouse each morning. And I mean though often and and I mean though often forget to give thanks to faint down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing at the holy birds at the kitchen window as they peck into the marriage of seeds. So while I think of it, let me paint a thank you on my palm for this laughter of the morning, lest it go unspoken. The joy that isn't shared, I've heard, dies young. So one expression of, I think, of that awakened uh, consciousness is one of gratitude, and one of feeling the sacredness in the, in the mundane, and of the, um, uh, the blessedness in the ordinary. And we meet that with a certain reverence. It's one of the reasons I go to places like that Redwood Forest is because it evokes a certain reverence. Like it's hard to walk through that without being stunned into reverence. But it's easy to forget that and just go through life taking people and things and for granted, including the water that comes out of your faucet. We take a little less granite for now, right now in California, till El Nino comes and blasts us with its whatever it's going to blast us with. So another interference with with our well-being, aside from thinking the ways that reality should meet our expectations and desires is thinking that we should be a certain way. Anybody think they should be different than they are? <laughs> Anybody trying to be different than who you are? Have you seen how what an impossible task that is? <laughs> we don't get very far. We never stray that far from being ourselves, being our personality, being our bumbling, humbling self. <coughs> That's not to diminish the aspiration to grow and to transcend and to optimize ourselves and our well-being and our potential, but to not make build a church out of that and a religion out of that. Because what, what happens when we do that is we, we, think we, we think that somehow who we are is a problem that needs to be fixed. And we can spend a lot of money on self-help books, which we might do. How many of you have a large stack of self-help books? <laughs> on the bedside table, on the coffee table, on the bookshelf now, getting gathering dust. So what it, one of the things I love about this practice is actually it's a radical, uncompromising way of meeting ourselves as we are. This game of waking up is not about fixing and improving ourselves. It's coming into a radically different relationship to, to ourselves and to what is. Which is why there's so much emphasis in the tradition about the attitude and relationship in which you bring to experience. Usually we're problemizing ourselves, people around us, the world around us. And what would it be like 
to bring this radical act of acceptance, allowing ourselves and others, but starting with ourselves, to be as we are. I don't know about you, but I've been in this game for 30 years, and the basic kind of hardware doesn't change so much. It gets older and crankier, but, you know, kind of like a lot of it stays pretty familiar. If I wandered back to my hometown 30 years ago, they'd probably go, there's Mark, it doesn't seem that much different. (laughs) Just a little more California weird. But what's changed is the inner, the inner workings of the mind and the heart. The capacity to meet things and difficulty in ourselves with love, with kindness, with clarity, with awareness. What would it be like if you gave up all ideas of self-improvement and just radically accept Who you are is who you are. How you are is how you are. That would be peaceful, wouldn't it? We think peace comes when I fix myself and my mind and my problems and my life and my heart and all of that. Then Then I can rest in my lovely spiritual retirement home. Right? But one of the great lessons of this practice, and the Buddha talked about, he said, and this is a wonderful, this is really the definition of um, neuroplasticity. He was the early neuroscientist, 2,600 years ahead of his time. He said, um, my favorite line, which I'll probably forget, he says, um, whatever we frequently dwell and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind and heart. Whatever the mind frequently, when the mind is always mind-heart, whatever the mind-heart frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of that mind-heart. So whatever we give attention to, that's where we lean. Where we lean, that's what we become. What we do, we become. We look back at what we've done, that becomes who we are, to some degree. So, um, So if we have the habit of self-improvement, self-fixing, there's no retirement because all we're doing is entrenching a habit of self-improvement that's never-ending. Especially if we have accompanied with that habit the presence of the inner critic, which of course has this very um, unattainable idea of perfection of how you should and could be and will be very persistent in reminding you that you're not there yet. (laughs) including in your spiritual retirement home. (laughs) So this is from Martha Graham, beautiful teacher, dancer. There is vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, and keep the channel open. 
That's your business. Not your business how it compares to the other shining objects around you in the room. What's your business is to allow that expression, its fullness, its, cr- its, its creative manifestation, however quirky and wacky and idiosyncratic that is. Right? And hopefully you are all idiosyncratic and quirky and unique, because we are, right? And it's not about shaving off all that wonderful uniqueness. <coughs> Sometimes people have this very distorted idea that this practice is about like getting rid of the lows and getting rid of the highs and sort of coming into this middle sort of zone, sort of flat line, like these folks back here, like <laughs> just go through life. Mm. Which might be possible, you know. It's not that interesting to me, but um, I mean, if that's if that is if that is your expression, then beautiful, lucky you. But that's probably not your expression. Your expression is probably, you know, human, and passionate, and caring, and volatile, and mercurial, and up and down, and around and about, and in and out, and everything in between. Right? That's called life. That's called dancing with life. That's called meeting and flowing with life. It's called fun. (laughs) It's called play. It's called, in the Hindu tradition, they call it lila, the divine play of life, and learning how to dance with that. There's beautiful forms of, um, you know, I can't think of their names now, like um, Saraswati and Lakshmi and all these dancing Shivas and... This dance of life. How do we dance with it? With all of its forms and varieties. And there's no there's no path for that. There's no there's no manual. You know. The Buddha had created an amazing manual how to free oneself from self created mental and psychological suffering and, and distress and ang- angst. But there's no particular manual for how you live the fullness of who you are with guided by wisdom and compassion. That's for our own selves to work out. As the Buddha said, work out your own salvation with diligence. Be a light unto yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. Know yourself. Know the way and work that out through your own inquiry, your own investigation, your own awareness. What does your path look like? What does your life look like? How would it look like if you unbound yourself from ideas of how you should be or who you think you should be? This is from Mary Oliver um, speaking about one of the many wonderful metaphors from nature is that nature beautifully embodies perfection and imperfection in one and they kind of in one swipe that there's a beauty in the imperfection <coughs> she says every year the lilies are a perf- are so perfect i can hardly believe they're lapped light crowding the black midsummer ponds 
Nobody could count all of them. The muskrats swimming amongst the pads and the grasses can reach out their muscular arms and touch only so many. They are that rife and wild. But what in this life is perfect? I bend closer and see how this one is clearly lopsided and that one wears an orange blight. And this one is a glossy cheek half nibbled away. And that one is a slumped purse full of its own unstoppable decay. Still, what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled, to cast aside the weight of facts, and maybe even to float a little above the difficult world. I want to believe I am looking into the white fire of a great mystery. I want to believe that the imperfections are nothing, that the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading, and I do. I want to believe the imperfections are nothing, that the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading, and I do. How great is that? To see through, to see the perfection in the imperfection. That line from attributed, misattributed to um, Suzuki Roshi. Doesn't really matter who said it, it's a great line. The line was, um, uh, you are all perfectly, you all, you're all completely perfect just as you are, and you all could do with a little improvement. But starts with the perfection. Not, you could, you know, if you keep improving, then you'll be perfect. That's a very different way of holding it. You're completely perfect just as you are, because you are who you are. You are just, how could you be anything other than you are? Could you be any different than you are right now? Like, is this a mistake that you are here as you are? No, it's life. And all the messes and chaos and wrong turns and right turns, whatever it is, and we're here. It's not a mistake here? Can we meet it as it is, with all the joys and the sorrows and the successes and the disappointments? So that's about what I wanted to say tonight. I'll close with a very profound um, cartoon from um, uh, Humpty Dumpty. So Humpty Dumpty's in the therapist's office, and the therapist is saying, now Humpty, we have to get you to the place where you can put yourself back together. <laughs> That's practice. <laughs> right? We develop the awareness, and the compassion, and the kindness, and the acceptance, and the forgiveness, and the love, and awareness, and insight, and that's and then we grow. Slowly, slowly, slowly. And on it goes. So it's um, nine o'clock, and I think that's plenty of words for this evening. So I'm going to end early and wish you a very good night. Lovely to be with you. And um, drive safe, and I'll be back, I think, sometime next month. Okay, lovely to be with you. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.